Did you tell them that you were up to like 2 a.m. cutting out those flannel graph things? I was like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm cutting these out. And I'm like, they don't come pre-cut? We have to do all the work? And then she said, look at this. And I looked real close and it said, copyright 1966. <laughs> That's fun. It's all on your phone now. So here's your dumb jokes. Uh, how do you find Will Smith in the snow? Oh my word, he knew it, he called it. You just keep looking until you find the fresh prince. Larry's on that. Okay, uh, I wrote a short letter to math, like mathematics. Would you like to hear it? You like math. Here we go, friends. Here we go. Here we go. Here's my short letter to math. Shall I just come over to you and say it? Dear math, I have enough trouble on my own. Please solve your own problems. Good day. I have three more. Thank you for indulging me. In another life, I would have been a, a bad stand-up comedian. Three more. I don't know much about Switzerland, but I will say this. Their flag is a big plus. Okay, then two, two about me. I'm not the smartest dad. Caroline asked, can you put on my shoes? And I said, I don't think they'll fit me. Not the smartest. Gabe said, did you put out the cat? And I said, I didn't know he was on fire. That's the end of that, okay. All right, Colossians chapter three. I've titled this little message, Good Knowledge. Colossians chapter three, verses nine and 10. Listen to the word of the Lord. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. This is the word of the Lord. So number one, do not, I just take the verses apart, chunk by chunk. Do not lie to one another. This is where we ended last week's sermon. If you remember, we've switched kingdoms from a kingdom rooted in lies to a kingdom rooted in Jesus, who is the truth. And we talked about the therapeutic nature of truth and that all sin is addictive and deceptive. So the deeper you get into sin, the more it pulls you in and the more it deludes your mind to the point where you believe your own lies, right? And I talked about, you know, speaking the truth to one another, do not lie to one another, means more than just being verbally truthful. It means not wearing masks. It means not being fake. It means that when I say I care about you, it's real. It, it, it means a level of not posturing. That's kind of where we ended last week's talk. Uh, some of the, the ideas to become utterly real people. Uh, I don't know. A, a community of utterly real people in some ways would be very intimidating. I said of my waggler side, which is mom's a, okay, mom's a Yoder and a Miller, Wow, I'm so Mennonite. And dad's a miller 
not the same Miller, careful, and a waggler. And on, yeah, I know, you get too many pinkies then if you keep that up. Um, no, that's science, that's science. The wagglers, this is how I described the wagglers one time, is they have deeply insightful knowing eyes. They don't just look at you, they look through you, and it's like, ooh, can we just break the eye contact? It's a little too personal. That's kind of what it's like to be in a community that's utterly real. When you look into their eyes, you actually see the real them, and they seem to see the real you, which is great because in a community where you're real, you can believe their acceptance. In a community where you and I are fake, there can be a niceness, but we don't really, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have grip. Do you know what I mean? A community with no masks. I have this concept that I've said in here like a dozen times called uh, looking worse, getting better. Looking worse, getting better. That as we start to get better, one of the things that happens is we begin to be much more open and transparent and honest and real. And so we start, as we're actually getting better, one of the first things that happens is we start to look worse because we stop faking. But eventually, as you are actually getting better, then you will start to look better too. But things are not always as they seem. The basis of the power of the 12-step program seems to be honesty in the context of loving acceptance. You would think that people would have more motivation to change if they were in a community that was very punishing and, and strict. Fear of community shame would keep you in line. Little, little Star Wars thing there. Fear of this battle station will keep the systems in line. But actually, it's the opposite is true. A community that is not accepting, a community that is demanding, shame-based, and uh, judgmental, maybe is a way to put it, it doesn't actually provoke better, better performance. It provokes discouragement, rebellion, or self-righteous, resentful compliance. But a community of love and truth and grace seems permissive in one sense, but actually, in the long run, creates people who do the right things with the right heart. Do th in other words, a community of shame will motivate us to change based on fear, fear of their disapproval, fear of the consequences. And a community of grace will motivate us to change based on love based on love, based on what our, so that, so that in a community of grace, we actually become real people because whenever you act out of fear, you become less of who you are meant to be. You become less of the real you. And whenever you act out of love, you become more the real you. And that's really what the Christian life is about. It's about becoming who you really are. There's this um, becoming who you really are. There's this story mom used to read to us called Tales of the Kingdom and the the king, who's the image of Jesus, would sometimes call these gatherings of the whole group. And to gather, they had to pass through this ring of fire. Ooh, a little Johnny Cash activity there. The ring of fire. I don't think I can hit that low note. Let me see if I can. The ring of fire. Nope, not quite. And when these people would all have to walk through the fire, they would kind of pause at the edge and they would step through. And as they stepped through, the fire would burn away what they seemed to be in the natural. And the real them that they were in the kingdom would be revealed. 
And, and I remember, you know, the first description, like Mercy, the caretaker, all little old lady, all hunched over and just kind of a quiet voice and her back's failing her, but she's endlessly doing and accepting and holding and healing and hugging and welcoming and restoring. And she walks through there and she is powerful. Things are not as they appear. There's another kind of fire that Paul talks about at the judgment seat of Christ. Our lives are going to pass through fire and they'll be revealed just like that. But we don't have to wait for judgment day to pass through that fire. Proverbs says there's a crucible for silver and a furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. So by going in the private place, in the secret place of our heart, into the secret place of the Most High and hearing His voice and listening to Him, he can actually do that transformation here and now ahead of time so that when we get there, there will not be negative surprises. Number two, seeing that you've stripped off, stripped yourself of the old self and its practices and have clothed yourself with the new self. We talked about this last time, right? This is baptism language. Talked about how they baptized in the early church. You go into the back room, you strip off the old clothes, you go down to the waters of baptism, you come up, They put a white robe on you and they present you to the congregation for the first time as a brand new person, right? But notice this, it says you have. There's some, it's a finished work. I love that. It's a finished event. It's, it's, if you, if the Jordan River is a thing that we're talking about, we have already crossed over into the promised land. So live like it. This is the truth, now live like it. This is exactly what I just said a little bit ago. Behave according to what you have become, or more awkwardly, become what you are. So I have questions based on that, right? Like, for example, don't you know who you are? Do you ever hear the Lord yell things to you? Have you ever heard him yell that? Don't you know who you are? Do you remember that scene in The Lion King? Where Simba's looking at his reflection and all of a sudden the reflection turns into the reflection of his father and he hears his father saying, Simba, Simba, remember who you are. Or how about this one? Why do you let that speak to you? Let's say you're in a place of condemnation and feeling completely unworthy and you're like, I've sinned too many times for the Lord to forgive me. This, I'm just so sick of myself. This is, by the way, not an unusual experience. If, you, if, you're, if you've lived in this or you're in this now, you are not alone. Millions of us Christians have to walk through having an adversary of our souls whose primary ministry is accusation and condemnation. And he'll say, who do you think you are? And he'll say, this is who you are. And he'll say, why would anyone love you? And he'll push, push, push. The enemy's goal in condemnation is to shut off your heart's capacity to receive God's love. That's his whole ministry. Because he knows if he can cut that off, he's cut off the very root of your power, of your strength, of the very fruitfulness of the gospel in your life. So he wants to speak to you and say, who do you think you are? Whereas the Lord will come into that same situation. You've really sinned, you've really messed up. You've really failed, and he'll come into that with the godly sorrow that says, you've done this, but it's not who you are. Come back. Remember when Jesus taught us to forgive our brother if he sins against us? 
Seven times in one day? And then Peter's like, yeah, but isn't there a limit? And he goes, how about 70 times seven? Work on that a while. See if you can get there in a day. Now, why would Jesus tell you to forgive your brother 70 times seven if he wouldn't treat you that way? In his kingdom, instead of a ministry of condemnation, which is the evil one's ministry, his is a ministry of reconciliation, mercy, and grace. In fact, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. In fact, when Jesus saw the world in wicked rebellion with no desire to please him, he said, I'm gonna lay my life down not to condemn the world. I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I came into the world to save the world. Our Christianity ought to look like that, by the way. Okay. Next one, uh, slide number three, from condemnation to friendship. This week, the Lord reminded me as I was kind of processing this, he, had, he, he reminded me, he was like, Tim, go back to your, when you first met me. What was your main fight? And I was like, oh man, my main fight was like condemnation all the time. Condemnation, I was never, I didn't feel worthy. I felt like my prayers didn't reach through the ceiling. I felt like if I read the Bible, I didn't read enough. I felt like if I prayed, I didn't pray with enough faith. I felt like when I opened my mouth, I said the wrong things, put my foot in my mouth. I just felt like I could, I was constantly dissatisfied with my performance in just about any area where I looked closely. And I looked closely. So my newfound desire to please the Lord and not myself was turned against me and I was constantly disgusted with me. It wasn't fun. It was not fun. So the first battle that I learned to fight was in that place to learn that I'm under, I'm under grace. That, that just because that's how I see me does not mean that's how God sees me. And just because that's how I think God should be relating to me does not at all mean that's how God is relating to me. And I've just said this, but I'm gonna say it again. That is called condemnation. It is a demonic ministry and everyone faces it, I have found. It's ex- like that was the first fight that I had to learn that I'm not under condemnation and that's not Jesus. That that voice that I was so used to giving place is illegal. That's that, I'm, I'm not to tune to that frequency anymore. I have to change radio stations. Change Spotify streams? I'm, how would you update that for the kids? Radio stations is okay? Excellent. My Moto phone, which I want to get rid of, if I plug in the headphones, I can use, yeah, I, Motorola. It's Moto G5 Plus. Okay, Moto G5 Plus. That's actually how I watched. Okay, I'm off topic, but I'm going to do it anyway. If you plug in the headphones, you can use a radio, an FM radio app. But if you pull the headphones out, you cannot. What? What year is it? Is my, uh, you know? All right, that was my first battle as a, as a baby Christian. My second battle as a baby Christian was, well, can you guess? If my first battle, well, it's on the screen, Tim. You put it on the screen. You can't ask him to guess if it's on the screen, duh. The negative side that I was asked, that the Lord was like, you have to unlearn this, Tim, was condemnation. But the positive side, and, and by the way, the Christian life is not just about getting saved from stuff, is it? Aren't we saved more, more importantly? Isn't it more important what we're saved for than what we're saved from? Can you imagine if the whole point of your marriage was to not cheat on each other? What a lame marriage. That's no marriage at all. Rooting it, basing it. That's a lot of people's Christian mindset. The whole goal of their Christian life is to avoid certain things, avoid hell and avoid sin. Well, no wonder nobody wants what we got. It's about the glorious joy of being fully alive. Irenaeus said the glory of God is humanity fully alive. That we're at, that, what are we saved for? What are we saved into? Who is he? In fact, that's how you get out of sin, by the way. 
You don't get out of sin by fighting sin. You get out of sin by falling in love with Jesus. He looks so much more attractive, so much more beautiful, so much more satisfying that your heart starts to draw from him what you wrongly were trying to get out of that. And if your whole goal is to stop sinning and your focus is on sin, you're still orienting your life around sin. Either pursuing it or ignoring it or avoiding it, right? Rebellion and religion are both empty. Two sides of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, rebellion and religion, faith is something entirely different, right? So the, so the second fight was, what am I saved into? And it's the friendship with the Lord. Phyllis Benner is kin to you, right? Your aunt. See if you can, she had a cassette tape. She's a fantastic songwriter. A cassette tape that back when I was at Rosedale Bible College, somehow Carrie got it and then I stole it. Or maybe I got, got it through marriage. And she has a song on there called Smiling Eyes. And I kept trying to remember the lyrics this week and it was driving me crazy. So I was like, oh, pff, Google knows everything. False. Google doesn't know Phyllis Benner. Yeah. Dang it, Google. Yeah, say it. Your smiling eyes. Next line. Your smiling eyes invite me to your presence. Your smiling eyes invite me to be with you. I celebrate with joy because I'm safe in the gaze of your smiling eyes. We did it. Teleprompter. Is that how you see the Father? That his smiling eyes invite you to be with him. Is that how you see God the Father? That you're safe in the gaze of his smiling eyes. Reminds me of a, a song by Cream called The Sunshine of Your Love. I knew you did, Jay True. Oh, man. But is that how you see the Father? If you don't see the Father as having a glint and a glimmer of happy comedy in his eyes, let me invite you to experience a biblical upgrade. He is the happiest being that ever was or will be. He is the most easily pleased person I've ever worked for. It's quite a bit different than like, you know, oh dear, don't go there. Fourth little chunk, which is being renewed. Being renewed. We are being renewed, right? So we talked about the finished work. Something is finished, but something else is in process. What's finished is our place in the family. You're here. You're not falling in and out. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Oh, I sinned. Now I have to ask forgiveness or I'm going to hell. Guys, you're in, and when you're in, you're all the way in. You can ask forgiveness because it's healthy in the relationship, but I don't get unmarried when I hurt my wife's feelings. I'm not falling in and out of marriage. Yes, my apologies matter, but they're not a salvation marriage issue. Does anyone understand what I'm throwing down here? There's a security. There's a stability. You're not falling in and out of salvation. I've, I one time went to the, knocked on this girl's door. We were asking for prayer requests, and she's like, I've been saved four times. And when you first meet somebody, like in three seconds, you probably shouldn't say, you're wrong. But I'm that sort of, <laughs> sort of person who would be like, mm, I don't know about that. Being renewed, aina kanao, is to cause something to be made new, to be renewed, to be restored. But renewed in what way? Next uh, slide. Renewed in knowledge. Knowledge. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says to be 
Transformed by the what? The renewing of your mind. Maybe we ought to stop pooping on knowledge so much as the church. Ephesians 4.23 says, uh, being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Oh, man, I just, this whole theme gets me excited. Some churches pick, it seems to me, seems to me, as I observe the church, that there are churches who choose Holy Spirit experience driven. And they look down on those Bible theology truth driven churches. And the Bible theology truth driven churches are like, yes, we have the orthodox faith and sound doctrine. And they look down on those Holy Spirit experience driven churches. And here comes Jesus and he says, you're wrong. You're both very dumb. And I love you, but get an upgrade, both of you. It's a false dichotomy. He said to the Sadducees, you're wrong because you don't know the power of God or the word. A healthy kingdom people will be rich in Holy Spirit-driven experiences and rich in biblical truth. All right, so where did sin land on the humans back in the beginning? What does the original story say? It was the tree of what? Not good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge. That's interesting. When they ate the fruit, it says their eyes were open and they what? They knew, they saw, they understood, except they understood wrongly. They saw wrongly. They knew wrongly. So the fall happened at the center of the human person. And the center of the human person is the spirit, in the little s, spirit. So where does the renewal happen, guys? The renewal happens in that same place. You might call it your will, which is centered in your spirit. Let me ask you a series of questions. What's the primary function of an engine? Make some, yeah, yeah. It's the power source to move the thing. What's the primary function of a steering wheel? Turn you where you want to go. What's the primary function of an ear? To hear. What's the primary function of your lungs? What about your liver? What does your liver do? Filters toxins. I I was hoping that somebody wouldn't say, it tastes bad because we're not... We're not not cannibals. What's the primary function of your nose? Right. So everything in God's creation exists with purpose, right, and design. It it has a functionality to it. So uh, slide number six. What's the primary function of the human will? Who said that? Elizabeth says to choose God. So in the garden, our will before the fall had, was functioning correctly. The primary function of the human will is to trust God. To trust God. And that's what got bent. What's the uh, primary function? No, no, before I go there. 
So there's a certain knowledge that actually leads to faith. There's a knowledge that leads to faith. When you trust God, then you know God. When you know God, then you trust God. And we gotta stop being negative about knowledge, guys. I know why. I know why we're negative about it because in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says knowledge puffs up but love builds up. But he's not talking about this kind of knowledge. He's talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil kind. He's talking about us being the experts. This is the knowledge of God. This is relational knowledge. This is intimacy. This is fuel for faith. This is not fuel for me to be an expert who knows so I can be on my own, independent. You can pursue the Bible that way so that you can feel a sense of self-satisfied pride that you know stuff and that makes you an important, uh, you know, oh, yes, people will ask me for my opinion because I am knowledgeable. That kind of knowledge does puff up. But the knowledge that doesn't puff up is the knowledge of God, which actually creates love, which creates humility, which creates genuine life. Okay. Are you still with me? Is it time for me to shut this down? It's almost time, isn't it? You can feel it in, your, in the room. There's always like half the room is like secretly like, yeah, please do. And then the other half is like, no, keep going. You know what I mean? So what's the primary purpose of the human heart? If the primary purpose of the human will is to trust God, what's the primary purpose of the human heart? Yeah, love God. Listen, guys, your primary purpose is to love God. That's why you're here. That's what you're on planet Earth to do. Whatever else you're here to do, and you're here to do a lot more, but that's the first thing that you're here to do. You're here to love God. And my job, my role, my calling, my purpose is to help you love God. Amen. That's what I'm here for. So my best day on earth is to see you in love with God. That makes me happier than anything. When you're in a good place with God, I feel like I won the lottery. And when you're in a bad place with God, I feel like someone drop kicked me right in the, in the chest. <laughs> okay, so be nice. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, let's, let's just scoot forward, skip the next one. Okay, Paul has the, this beautiful prayer at the heart of his whole Christianity. He says, I wanna know Christ. This is, this is my one thing. I just wanna know Christ. I want to know Christ. That's not illegal knowledge. That's going back to the garden, back to face-to-face communion, back to a no-condemnation relationship where when God showed up in the cool of the day, we entered in. We didn't look at ourselves and see if we measured up. We just showed up. We didn't even know we were naked. We weren't measuring ourselves. In the beginning, we were in a grace covenant. We're not in a works covenant having not sinned yet. We were in a grace covenant, not evaluating ourselves. Guys, they made mistakes. There were plenty of mistakes they could make, but none of them changed them except that one tree. It doesn't say they were perfect in the beginning. They were just innocent. There's a big difference. They were in a place of grace, but they entered into a place of law when they ate that fruit, and the law came inside of them in an illegal way. Almost done. Let's just skip ahead to point 10. According to the image of its creator. What in the world is the image of the creator? 
I remember reading the theologians and they're like, oh, well, obviously the humans are the only ones who are made in the image of God, so that must be our incredible intellectual capacity. Mm, I don't know, whales are pretty dang smart. You know? There's a lot of intelligent creatures. Oh, well, it must be this. I'm just reading the theologians and trying to answer the question. Sometimes, you know what I mean? Like the birthplace, Bill Johnson has this wonderful quote, the birthplace of bad theology is when leaders try to speak into questions the Lord's not answering. In other words, we're coming up with answers, but it's not God's voice. I've just been processing that, right? Like, sidebar. What is the image? Well, in Genesis 5, one day I'm reading, and it says that Adam and Eve had a son in their image and in their likeness, and they named him Seth. So if it's the moral compass or the intellect or all these things the, the theologians said... That's weird. No. Do you know what image and likeness means? It means we come from him. We're his children. That's what it means. We're in his image and likeness because we're his kids. When the angels looked at the apes, they didn't see what they saw when they looked at Adam when he opened his eyes that first time and looked back in God's face, which I think is the first thing Adam saw. the smiling eyes. And you know that was a good moment for the father. The whole Bible is the story of a father who wants a family. That's why he overcame sin and death, guys. He wants a family. So it's family language. One time, uh, I was like 20 years old. I'm at Bible college. I'm walking down the road, and this total stranger comes up to me, and she says, oh, you're a Miller boy. Who's are you? You're Nathan's. You're Ellis's. And I said, What? I'm Norm's. And she goes, yep, that's it. Pegged it. Miller boy. I said, how did you know? She said, the walk. (laughs) Listen, I grew up in Indiana. This woman lived in Ohio. I'd never met her in my life. I don't even know. She'd never seen me before either. But she knew my clan. She knew my tribe. She saw my image and likeness and said, "Mm, I know where you're from. She saw my walk and knew my father. Here's my theory. Tell me what you think. As we get to know God better and better, without us necessarily being aware of it, it changes our walk. And others might see him on us, even when we don't, even when we can't. Go ahead, Stan. Um, When Tim was speaking, it reminded me of um, something I was teaching the youth on Wednesday. I don't know if you guys know that butterflies can't see their wings. We can see ours, but only if we see it through the Father's lens. And um, with Adam, like, he, they could see Jesus or see God through him, and he's the image of God. It just also reminded me that most butterflies are clear, and we only see color on them because of reflection. So not only can we, as humans, sometimes not see our beauty, but the beauty that we do have is, re- is reflected from the Father. So if we want to see our beauty, we have to have that fellowship with God for that reflection, because we're his image. Today, I was, it was on my heart that nobody leave today without prayer. Sometimes we sit here and we think that we don't need prayer and everything's going well, but prayer isn't just about what we need, 
Sometimes it's just about what God needs to tell us, and we might not know that we need something in the moment. So I just want you to pray with one or two people. Just try to have a moment in here if God has something for that person, because I feel like God doesn't want anyone to leave today without some word from him, because he wants to talk to us all the time. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you love us so much. Not only do you love us, but you put the love in us to share with others, to spread the light around, to do good works, Father. I'm asking as our weeks go and our, and our time go that we all find time and moments just to fellowship with you, to hear from you, because that is where we're going to learn about our true selves, is in fellowship with you, Father. We'll learn from all the good things you have for us and all the great things you made us to be, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.